welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. I reject your reality and substitute my own is a well-known line from the TV show Mythbusters, but that won't work when the reality is God's. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Kingdom Parables with this sermon entitled Embracing Reality, which covers Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30 and 36 to 43. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Zion Brown is going to come. He's going to read our scripture for us this morning. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 13, 24 through 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. While his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Zion. Praise be to God. Let's, uh, let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. O oh God, you instruct us by your holy scriptures. We urge you by your grace to enlighten our minds and cleanse our hearts that reading, hearing, and meditating upon them, we may rightly understand and heartily embrace the things you have revealed in them. Make effective through the Holy Spirit the seed of your word to be received into our hearts as into good soil, and that we may not only hear your word, but keep it, living in conformity to it, producing fruit in our lives through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And amen. What, uh, what happens to us after we die? There may not be any question more common to the human experience. What happens when we die? Is there an afterlife? Is there a heaven and hell? Do we, uh, do we go into nothing? Do we come from nothing? Do we return to nothing? Uh, these are the questions as you well know, that when we're alone with our thoughts and if we're honest with where we tend to, to go with our thoughts, this one inevitably, at, at least often, pops up. It rises to the surface of our heart and our minds. Everyone wonders it. All religion in some way tries to answer it. We long to know the answer. What happens after we die? It's interesting, uh, there was a 2021 study done by Pew Research with some, uh, some interesting statistics here. Um, one in six Americans do not believe in any afterlife, which you could still look positively and say, well, that means that quite a few still do. The debate often comes in, well, then what kind of afterlife and how do you get there? What is the way? 73% of Americans believe in heaven. 62% believe in hell. 
So even there, uh, you know, almost three-fourths of Americans believe in heaven, but then as the study showed, I won't get into all of it. You can look it up on your own. Uh, there's a lot of different definitions of heaven. Where is heaven? What is heaven about? Uh, you know, there's a breakdown from there. Uh, of those identifying as Christian, which is a very broad category of definition that they were using, 92% believe in heaven, 79% believe in hell. The age breakdown is interesting as well. Uh, if you're 65 and above, I'm only looking at, by the way, I'm only going to reference in these age breakdowns the belief in hell because that's where our passage is taking us this morning. I'll speak to that in a moment. 65 and above, 62% of people 65 of age and older believe in hell. The, of these demographics, of these age demographics, the, the largest group in terms of, or, or the highest belief percentage belief in hell is between the ages of 50 and 64. 70% of people in that group believe that hell is a real place that we go after, that some go after, after death. From there, it, it, it declines significantly. Those ages 30 through 49, 59% believe in hell or that hell is real. And then from there, 18 to 29%, or I'm sorry, 18 to 29-year-olds, 55%. So significant decline. Here's, here's kind of what this study shows. Again, it's, it's very thorough. I'm just hitting the very uh, surface of it. But it, it pretty much showed this conclusion. Uh, the belief in both heaven and hell is significantly declining, significantly, over the last 50 years. Now, by nature, understandably, more people believe in a concept of heaven than they do in a concept of hell. So here's another part of what this study at least said to me. It's this. It's that we, humanity, we want a God, however we define God, we want a God who is infinitely merciful. We don't want a God who is infinitely just. Again, understandably, makes us incredibly uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about that. We don't like to conceive of a God who is just to the point that there would actually be something like eternal punishment. You know, it's interesting. We, we overcorrect throughout human history, and if you study church history, uh, it's just common through the ages that we overcorrect. We'll overemphasize one doctrine one teaching, one reality that the scriptures teach us. And then we'll realize we probably pushed that a little too far. And so then we'll come back and we'll overcorrect in the next generation. So some of you grew up, especially if you're in that 55, 65 age group and older, you grew up with what might be called or has been called hellfire and brimstone preaching. You know, somebody's on stage in the podium at the pulpit yelling at you about hell scaring you into heaven, right? And my generation and younger, uh, we grew up noticing, wow, that, that wasn't all that effective. And so what do we do? We overcorrect. To where nowadays, you, you'd be hard-pressed to walk into many churches in America at all where, uh, the Bible, or, or where we teach the Bible when it talks about these things specifically about hell. Here's the interesting thing, though, and we don't know what to do with this. Jesus, of all the people quoted in the Bible, uh, Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else. And we go, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. You know, and, and understand, again, understandably, 
But, but here's, here's the thing that we have to understand about God that speaks into the realities of our lives now and into the realities of our lives for eternity. We have to understand who God is. And here's the reality of God. God isn't either or. He's not either infinitely merciful or infinitely just. He's both. And if he ceases to be both, then he ceases to be God. And he's not a God worthy of our worship because that means in some area he proves to be powerless, incapable. And so the, the, the God that the Bible presents to us, who we as Christians believe is the one true God, is evidenced through the, the person of Jesus Christ. This God is both fully, infinitely merciful and infinitely just. Which means, this is a big leap to a conclusion here, but if you were to keep training, uh, chasing that thought, it would mean that the Bible very readily, very unapologetically, very often teaches that heaven is real and that hell is real. Here's why the gospel is such good news. There's, there's actually a thousand reasons as to why the gospel is good news. But here's just one of them as it pertains to eternal life. The gospel is good news because a very real Jesus came to a very real earth and lived a very real perfect life. He, he died a very real death, rose from a very real grave, ascended to a very real heaven to rescue us from a very real devil and a very real hell. This isn't made up. This isn't fairy tale. This isn't allegory. It's real. And, and I entitled this sermon Embracing Reality because if we believe the scriptures, then we believe that what they're saying isn't suggestive in tone, but it's actually prescriptive. It's, it's, it's descriptive. It's presenting facts from a God who sees so much more than we do, who is infinite and speaks into our finite realities to help us see infinite realities. And so, this is where this parable leads us. This parable, last week, if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was the introduction to this four-week series that we're doing as we work our way through Matthew chapter 13. And we look at different parables, not all the parables that are in here, but some of the ones that are in here. And consider the, the heaviness, but also the power, the freedom that will come from what Jesus is teaching here. So last week, we didn't look at one of the parables, but we asked the question, why parables? Why would Jesus teach this way? What's the point of them? Why are they effective? What's he trying to get at? So go back and listen to that if you missed it. But this first parable that we're looking at is called the parable of the weeds. Jesus didn't call it that. That's what we have named it, just to give it a name to it so that it can be memorable. And listen to what he says as the description of this parable. Here's, if you need to recap real quick, I know Zion read it, but here's the, here's the, you know, kind of the basic premise of it. The parable, this short story is, is, is this. A man sows, see, sows good seed in a field. And overnight, as he and his servants are sleeping, the enemy comes, his enemy comes and sows in that field weeds. Over some time, time passes, and as these Plants grow, and it gets to a point where it becomes evident that there are weeds among the good wheat and, and plant. 
So the servants come to this man and say, didn't, didn't you sow good seed in your field? And he says, yes, this is the work of, of an enemy. Then they ask an important question. Should we go now, right now, while the plants are still growing, should we go now and seek to pull out these weeds? And he says, no, because if you do that, you're going to pull up the good with it. Leave it. And at harvest, when the plants are fully grown, at harvest, then I will send my reapers to go and take the weeds, uproot them, and separate the weeds from the wheat. That's the story. So, just like last week, the, uh, the disciples are going, huh? So they go to him and they ask him, can you, can you explain that to us? What is that all about? So a little bit later on in the, in the chapter, let me read it to you. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. This was his answer, verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The field is the world and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. Son of man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping And gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Remember last week we talked about this. That's the question that permeates the whole chapter. Do you have eyes to see with faith the beauty of Jesus? Do Do you have ears to hear the truth of his teaching? Do you have a receptive heart to receive his word? Here's the... The breakdown. I just, we just read it, but I want you to get it in your mind. Here's the characters. Here's, here's what they mean. So very quickly, the sower is Jesus, the man who sows the good seed. The field is the world. He's sowing seed. Jesus is sowing seed, the good seed of the gospel of the kingdom of God, all throughout the world. Okay? Even now. The good seed, if you're a Christian, is you. If you've believed upon Christ, you're the good seed. We are the good seed. Those who are followers of Christ. We are, and it, it defines us or calls us the children of the kingdom. You and me, we're the good seed, which means not only are we the good seed that's planted into the soil, but we actually are through, as we understand from the rest of scripture, we are also sowing good seed of the kingdom through our lives. The weeds, as he says, are the sons of the evil one, Satan. Jesus often calls Satan the devil. And so the, the sons of the devil, you go, who is that? Well, this is, this is some hard teaching, but this is, this is what the Bible very clearly teaches. There are only two teams in this celestial cosmic battle. Only two teams. And you can think of it like a football game where there's a field, but there are no stands. There is no stadium. Everyone's playing in the game. It's either Team Jesus or it's Team Satan. What the Bible teaches, and this can be the part that's a little hard to swallow, but it makes sense if you think about it. We are born into sin. We're not sinful because of what we do. We're, We're sinful because it's our nature. We're sinful because it's who we are. We inherited sin nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. 
And so we are born with what is commonly called Adam's residue, the residue of Adam in us. So what that means is that we are by nature, by default, born onto Team Satan. Now you may say, I've never worshipped Satan. Neither have I. None of us have. It's not that you're overtly knowing that you're on that team, but by default, that's who we are. And the only way to get on team Jesus is through the way. Christ himself, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Only through Christ do you go to the Father. And so to move from one team to the other is only through the person of Jesus. And he's done all the work, which is the part of the, another part of the good news. And so with that, this parable is helping us see that the weeds are the sons of the evil one, which is, here's the, here's the application, is anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus. Anyone who's not believed upon Christ has rejected him as the son of God. The weeds are literally, quite literally, in that day and time. Remember, this is an agrarian culture. Agriculture pervades. They would have known immediately what Jesus is talking about. These are, these are things that actually happen in real fields in, in Israel. And they would have called this weed uh, zazania was the common term, kind of the colloquial term for it. And this weed plagued grain fields in Israel. And it was so hard to identify most of the time because when it was sown among wheat, it would grow up, but it would take quite some time in the growth process to eventually reveal itself to be a weed because it looked in, in the first few stages of growth just like wheat. And so the only way to tell was to let it keep growing, let it keep growing, and eventually the fruit would reveal its character. And its fruit would show it's not producing wheat, but something different once it gets to that harvest stage. And one other point about these weeds is that uh, they were a host to a fungus, which if eaten by animals or by humans proved to be poisonous. So even in that, I hope you're starting to get some of these, uh, you know, a little bit of a connection points between what's happening, why Jesus is using this as an example in the realities of the spiritual world. Lastly, he says, the enemy who sowed the weeds is the devil, and the reapers are God's angels. So here's, here's three things that we can take from, from uh, I think, three um, There's probably way more, but three things I want to give you to take from this parable. The first one is this. Uh, we, we, we've got to embrace the reality of the battle. Embrace the reality of the battle. What is the battle? What's, what's happening? Where is it? Is it what we think it is? You know, here's what this parable teaches us, shows us. It says this. It says that in this age that we're in, which is the age from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, to the return of Christ, this in-between that we've been in for about 2,000 years, that this is what has often been called the already not yet kingdom of God because the kingdom of God has come, but it's hidden. It dwells within the heart, within the embodiment of individual believers, uh, individual believers and together with us when we're gathered like this corporately. But the kingdom of God is, is hidden. It's secret in a way. But through people who have encountered Jesus and believed upon him, he dwells within us, his kingdom resides within us, and then we become kingdom spreaders where we take the kingdom and we continue to sow the beauty of Jesus everywhere we go. 
both in what we say and proclaim in the gospel and in what we do and demonstrate in the gospel to others as we serve them. But as long as we're in this in-between phase, meaning that good and evil will never be fully separated until Jesus comes again, there will be intertwining that happens. Think of the parable. They grow up together, the weeds and the wheat. And what happens at the root level is that the weeds, the roots of the weeds and the roots of the wheat just intertwine to where, you remember what the, the, the servant said? They said, should we pull up the wheat now? And, and he said, no. Because if you go to try to pull up the wheat and the weeds now, you're going to mess up both because they're not ready. But at the perfect time, when the Father declares it, Jesus says even he doesn't know the day or the time, but the Father does. And he'll, he'll turn to Jesus in the heavenlies where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will say to him, it's time. It's time. It's time to go gather your people. And that's called the harvest. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But right now, one of the things that this teaches us is this, is that good and evil coexist in this age. And listen, everywhere the kingdom of God grows, so does the kingdom of Satan. Everywhere, everywhere good goes and begins to pervade, so does evil. The, the enemy is going to do everything that he possibly can to undermine and subvert the kingdom of God. And he is the great deceiver, but he's even deceived himself because he thinks he's actually going to do it. Isn't that funny? He thinks he's actually going to do it. He thinks he's going to win this battle, but he knows the answer. He knows he's not, but he's doing in the meantime everything that he can to lessen the power of the kingdom of God. I like how Dan Doriani put it. He said this, wherever the kingdom advances, it encounters a cosmic struggle. Wherever gospel and kingdom go, Satan resists. So realizing this, a couple of quick applications on this point, realizing this should lead us to two things. First, it should lead us to never be shocked. Never be shocked. The Christian should never be um, shocked by the opposition and the evil that we encounter in this world. Summarizing Francis Schaeffer, he said, the biblical Christian should never be shocked by anything in this world. You know, I, I don't say this judgmentally at all. I really don't because I do it too. And, and I kind of just look at myself even and go, why? Why are you shocked? It's, it's interesting to watch Christians be shocked by evil in the world. Because the Bible clearly teaches us it's going to be part of our battle in this life. How in the world could so-and-so do this? How in the world could so-and-so, that thing happen? How in the world? How, and, and we go, I'm so shocked. And now listen, uh, can you grieve it? Absolutely. Can you hate it? Yes. Can you weep over it? Yes. But be shocked? No. We don't, I mean, we shouldn't be shocked by anything in this age. Second thing is that not only are we to never be shocked, but we are to never cease praying. Now, that's a crazy one. You'll never cease praying. I actually comes straight from Scripture where the Apostle Paul um, tells us to pray continually. And that, that's like, how do I do that? How do you pray uh, continually? How, how, do, how can you consciously Continue to pray when there's all these things to be done during the day. And so surely that's not what he meant, that it's just this constant 
conscience praying. So what is he getting at? I think it's certainly that. Sometimes, obviously, we need to be very in tune with what we're praying and designate prayer times in our lives. But what he's getting at is that there's a posture among Christians understanding the reality of the battle where we are constantly in this posture at the heart level, at the mind level of dependence upon the Lord. Oh, God, I need you every second of every day. And so even though I can't pray every second of every day, I can be in that posture of dependence upon the Lord every second of every day. And, and here's what it might look like when you're at work and you're going into that meeting. It's not like, hey, I'm going to go pray over here for a little bit before I go into the meeting. It's just as you're walking in, you're acknowledging, oh, God, would you, would you use me here? I need you. You know, when you're walking into the grocery store and, and you just feel weary and you're like, I don't want to spend any more money and you're reminded over and over and over again of how your finances don't ever seem to be where they are, what do you do? Well, you don't just get on your knees in the grocery store. Maybe you could, you should, I don't know, but you, you probably won't. And what do you do as you're walking the aisles and as you're putting more stuff into your cart that you have to have to feed your family? What do you say? You say, God, provide. I trust you're going to provide. It's when your kid is having the, the world's greatest breakdown in public, in the grocery store. You know, praying continuously, never ceasing in praying is not to go over here and say, okay, my kid is having a complete meltdown on aisle five. I'm going to go to aisle four and pray that he would stop. No, no, you don't do that. What do you do? As you're going to this kid, what are you saying? You're praying. It's a positive. Lord, help me not kill this child, right? <laughs> Lord, I need you to help me be patient, right? Help me to engage his heart and not just spank his bottom, whatever, you know? Pray continually, but also, here's the point, not just pray continually, pray continually with, while embracing that the enemy is doing great work and sowing great seed and the battle is ultimately not your kid. The battle is ultimately not that CEO who you can't stand in the meeting. The battle is not that you're not getting paid enough to pay for your grocery bills. The, the battle that we fight is not against flesh and blood. Straight from scripture. I mean, Ephesians chapter six says this. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so our prayer, our prayers, our posture of prayer, our heart, our mind, the ways in which we engage with the world around us are in this ever-present reality that something's going on that I can't see. And the best way to engage in that battle is to pray. That's what we do as Christians. We embrace the reality of the battle. But we also embrace the reality, secondly, that we embrace the reality of the harvest. In the parable, remember what he says? He says, wait for the harvest, harvest, and then you can uproot the weeds and separate them from the wheat. What's he talking about there? Well, what he's talking about, and this makes us uncomfortable. We don't like this, but he's talking about this. There's a judgment coming. When Jesus comes again, there's a judgment coming. He will judge the living and the dead. We just recited that earlier in the Apostles' Creed. And in this judgment, he will separate the weeds from the wheat, meaning those who have believed upon him and are the children of the kingdom will be separated from those who don't believe, who have rejected him. 
as Savior and as Lord, and they'll be thrown into the fire. This is the part where you'll be hard-pressed to find churches anywhere that will talk about this. When we used to talk about it all the time. This parable makes it abundantly clear that Jesus will judge. God is not only infinitely merciful, he's infinitely just. Our returning king who pours out his infinite mercy on those who have accepted him, he will pour out his infinite justice on those who have rejected him. Now, listen, this should lead us to a couple of things as well. This reality should lead us to many things, but let me give you two. One, it should lead us to repent and turn. Repent and turn. Back in the old days, the, you would hear people yell, turn or burn, right? I don't know that I love that, but that's kind of the idea. Repent. Repent of your sin. Turn. Turn where? This was the point of last week's sermon. Turn to Jesus. He's the only one that can save. But why do we turn to Jesus? Listen, don't miss this. If you're not going to tune into any part of the sermon, tune in here. If your neighbor's sleeping, wake him up. Say, hey, he wants you to listen right here, okay? Why do we turn to Jesus? Because what happened on the cross? Think about it. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only place in the history of humanity for all of time where the infinite mercy of God and the infinite justice of God came to collide at the same point in time and be fully and totally met and satisfied in one person. In one person, because what is Jesus doing on the cross? He's saying this, he's saying, I love these people so much. I love these people so much and I wanna bestow my love and mercy on them so much that I'm gonna take for them what? I'm gonna take for them the just, there's that word, the just wrath of God. So what happens on the cross is that the justice of God, the punishment of God on sin, that's us sinners, that's not Jesus, he's sinless, but on sinners, the just wrath of God is placed on him as if it were his. And he says, I don't deserve it. I'm the only person who ever walked the face of the earth who didn't deserve this, but put it on me. And when God pours out his wrath, his just wrath on his sinless son as the lamb of God, he is the one and only perfect sacrifice for sin. And the result of that then is that if you believe upon Jesus, no longer is God's just punishment on you because it's been satisfied in him. That's why we turn to Jesus. That's why the gospel is so good is because it's only through Jesus. This is why he's the way. This is why no other religion is the way. This is why Jesus is the way because he's the only one that took the just wrath of God and says, it's been satisfied. Don't put it on them. You can accept them now. Their sin no longer deserves punishment. I've satisfied that, says Jesus. So we turn to Jesus, we repent of our sin, and we turn to Jesus. Now, here's the hard part, though. If we don't, if you don't turn to Jesus as the only one who received the just punishment of sin on your behalf, then where does that just punishment still reside? On you. 
The punishment of sin has not been dealt with through faith in the person of Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. It's on you. The penalty of sin is still on your head, which is death itself, not just physical, but eternal. And what does this parable teach us about what that means after this physical life is over, at least in this temporary age? It means that there's two realities. There's a heaven where those who have trusted upon Christ go, and there's a hell. Jesus is infinitely merciful, but he's also infinitely just. So two things, we, what should it lead us to? It should lead us to turn, repent and turn to Jesus. It should also, if you're a Christian, it should lead us to tell people about Jesus. Share your faith. You've heard me tell this story before. It's been told a million times in churches since it happened, but it's still powerful. And many, many years ago, the famous magic duo of Penn and Teller, Penn is a very outspoken atheist, and he recorded a video. And it was after one of his shows where someone had come up to him after the show, a Christian, and handed him a New Testament. And in the front cover of that New Testament, he had just written a very personal, kind note, basically saying, I believe everything in this is true, and I pray that you'll turn to Jesus. Penn was so moved by that that he made a video soon thereafter, just on his computer screen. Even before FaceTime was a thing, he was FaceTiming. And he was talking into it, and he said, he said this. He said, look, I don't believe anything in this book. I don't believe this. I'm an atheist. Everybody, if you follow me, you know that. But let me, let me say something. I commend this guy for doing what he did. Because if I am absolutely convinced, this is him talking, if I am absolutely convinced, if I am convinced that there's a heaven and that there's a hell and that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And that if you don't believe upon Christ, hell is the reality, which is what the scriptures teach. This isn't my opinion. This is the Bible that teaches this. He said, if I am convinced of that, how much would I have to hate you to not tell you that? I may, th- I think, I may think you're crazy for believing it, but I would say, hey, you're convinced of it, so I, I know you love me now because you think I'm going to hell. I, I'm not going to berate you for that. We hold in our hearts and in our hands, figuratively in our minds, we hold the keys to the kingdom of God, so to speak, in the sense that we have this good news of the gospel for people who are dying and perishing. Why would we hold that back? Because we think they might get mad at us? Because we're afraid of how they might view us? Because we're afraid of our reputation? Well, when you consider eternity, what do those things matter? We talk to people about Jesus. But there's a third thing I think we can take away from this text, from this parable, and it's embrace the reality of the kingdom, of kingdom people. Oh, let me say this real quick before we hit that. On that share, your, share the gospel front, you may go, gosh, I, I hear you. I desire to do that. I have no idea how it ever begin to engage with people in that way. In sermon advertisement, here we go. We have something for you. Randy Pope, our founding pastor for years, has taught a class called Express Your Faith. But he's been working really hard to revamp it and change kind of how we go through it, how he goes through it. It's usually been a weekend deal, uh, what he's doing now, starting on March 10th. If you want to circle that, you'll be getting emails about it where you can register for it. But starting on March 10th, he's going to start offering it on Sunday mornings. And it's going to be a time... Uh, for him to seven weeks in the spring, 11 weeks in the fall, to have a very interactive teaching and coaching environment on how to share your faith. And it's going to be awesome. So anyway, be looking for that. Advertisement over. All right.
Third point in the little bit of time we have left. Embrace the reality of kingdom people. The way this parable finishes is astonishing. It's astonishing. Listen to how Jesus finishes it. First of all, before I read the last verse, he says, remember, he says that the, the good seed is the, king, is the children of the kingdom. That's Christians. You are now adopted into the family of God. You were once an enemy of God. Now you're not just a friend of God. You're a, a child, a son, a daughter of the king. You were in the kingdom of darkness. Now you're in the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's this just unreal reality of what's been transformed in us in terms of how we stand before God all through the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. Okay, so we're children of the kingdom. But then look at this last verse. It says this, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father forever. So after the judgment, after the weeds, those who haven't believed in Christ have been separated from the wheat. Those who have believed upon Christ, he says this, he says, the wheat, us, the children of kingdom, if you believe upon Christ, will shine forever with him. That means we will partake with him in his glory. We will experience the fullness of life like we've never imagined for all of eternity, not just in this place called heaven, but back here on earth called the new heavens and the new earth because where's Jesus coming? He's not returning and then going back. He's returning and staying. And those who are his will be with him. This reality of heaven is unbelievable, but what did it call us? It said the righteous. Who's that? I know it's not me. I'm not righteous. Well, actually, if you're a follower of Christ, if Christ covers you like we talked about earlier, God sees you as righteous. Remember what happened at the cross? He took the full punishment of God as if it were his. What did he give to us? His righteousness is given to sinners, you and me, as if it were ours. That faith swap is astonishing. That sinners like you and me would be called righteous, not just called righteous, but seen as righteous. Not just seen as righteous. Listen, language most used about you and me if we're followers of Christ in Scripture, the people of God, beloved. Beloved. This is hard for us. This is a different sermon for a different day that I'm currently kind of halfway writing. Do you know that God delights in you if you're in Christ? This is hard for us. We, we believe at the base level, we may not say it, but we operate as though, yes, it's amazing that God through Jesus has saved me from eternal punishment in hell, but he just tolerates me. I annoy him. I can't get it right. He's always frustrated with me. But that's not true. You are his beloved. He delights in you. You are his righteous. Listen to this. He likes you. <laughs> you know that carries with it in our weird culture today, that carries with it probably more power than he loves you. If I tell you I love you, there's a part of you that goes, well, you're supposed to. You're a pastor. You're a brother in Christ. You're a parent. I, you know, we say this all the time. I love you. I don't have to like you, right? <laughs> but if I look at you and I say, hey, I like you. First of all, that's weird. We don't say that. But if I did, and you could receive it without the weirdness, it would change your heart. 
He would change your heart. Why? Because we don't think people delight in us. You may love me, but you don't delight in me. You may love me, but you don't like me. Here's what God says in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love you and I like you. I delight in you. You are my righteous. And you will shine with me forever. Father, help us. Help us to believe that. Help us to believe that you love us and you like us so much, so much that you would come and die for us and raise from the dead for us and provide a way for us to be out from under the judgment of our sin. Help us to embrace that reality. Father, I'm mindful of those who may be in the room or listening online who have never believed upon you, never really thought about deeply about the afterlife. And so I just pray today as they listen that this would be the time when you open their eyes. Give them eyes of faith to believe and see and hear. Give them ears to hear, even as Jesus said. To receive your gospel truth with a soft heart, with gladness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.